Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. Dave Kliz, welcome to the Center of the Universe. Thank you, sir. I guess we should start with how we connected. Silent Rob is here in the room with us. Silent Rob. And you, and you and Silent Rob have known each other for how long? Uh, going on 20, 20, 24 and 25 years. I mean, it, I guess it depends on what month we, we met. <laughs> we went through a, uh, well, we'll get to that. I guess we went through the police academy together, so we've been friends ever since. Uh, and Silent Rob, just for the listening audience, is giving hand signals <laughs> instead of talking. <laughs> All right, so Dave, uh, you, you are a man of many experiences, I would say. Yes. Uh, and I'd love to cover all of them at whatever level of detail you want to get into. Let's start with where were you born? I was born in San Leandro, California. Okay. What was mom or dad doing out there? Uh, my dad worked for GE. Okay. And uh, my brother and I were both born out there, uh, two years apart. My sister was born in Fort Wayne, Indiana. She's two years older. I'm the middle child. Um, after he actually, after he got out of college, he went to work for GE in their management program, but he kind of he went through high school kind of early so he got out of college early as a result and was kind of a young person in this management program so he uh kind of took a leave and then he went into the army mm. and uh served for four years in the army and then ge he went back in the management program at, G- at ge so you're wait a minute your dad went to college then entered a management program with ge then went into the army yes and then went back to the management program that's quite a, uh, a route. It was. It's because he graduated from high school when he was 16. So he was just... Because um, he was smarter than the average bear? I would, yeah, I mean, I guess you've listened to him tell the story. <laughs> He's a pretty smart guy, uh, I will say. So he, he just felt like he needed to mature some more. So he went into the military, um, but he had college. So he uh, went, went to officer candidate school, was a uh, second lieutenant when he got out. Um, matter of fact, we were just talking the other day about some of the stuff that he did when he was in the army. He was in Kansas, um, I guess in Indiana. Well, he was in Indiana. I think he was in Indiana for GE. Made his way to California. He was in sales, and then so that's uh, and then made his way back to Roanoke, and then that's where is that where he's from originally? Uh, my dad's from Queens, New York. What? And my mom's from Clarksdale, Mississippi, and they met in Kentucky. Oh my gosh! <laughs> so. Oh, your house, uh, I'm telling you, there's so many people, well, actually not that many people, that have parents that are from such different backgrounds that I wished I, I had known them back then and I would hire a camera crew. <laughs> you and I could be gazillionaires now. Yeah. Yeah, that's wild. So we, after leaving California, we came to uh, move to Roanoke. GE moved him to Roanoke, and um, that's where I did kindergarten, first and second grade. So you have memories of California. Yeah. Yeah. And then very, but very little. I mean, like we lived on a marina in San Leandro. I just remember it was really sunny and you could just see all the sparkling from on the sidewalk in the marina. And I knew we lived in a one story house and then had a lot of weird, you know, old like slats for dividers and weird stuff like that. Um, but more memories from living in Roanoke. And then we, uh, GE moved us up to Buffalo, New York for one year and then to Richmond in fourth grade. So, and then you kind of settled in yeah. Richmond at that point. Yeah. So, wait a minute. California. What part of California? San Leandro. So, it was, it's across the bay from Oakland. Okay. So, or, excuse up, me, San Francisco. Up Northern California. So, Northern California to Roanoke. Mm-hmm. That's a major shift. The Buffalo. I imagine you've forgotten most of that year in Buffalo. Maybe not. Well, that's funny because um, that's where I became a Bills fan. 
Oh. Eight years old. You come by. You come by it honestly. That's when I Every, picked my favorite. Team. Everybody there, everything in Buffalo was Bills, Sabers, and back then it was the Buffalo Braves, the yep. NBA. And um, uh, those are the days, I believe. Joe Ferguson. Mm-hmm. Um, it was. Uh, so you know you carry that with you, but you know then he had all those years where you never see him on TV. Oh, they're because well, they're never on TV. Well, they're from Buffalo, right? They're, they're not going to be popular anywhere except no market upstate down New here. York. Uh, and they haven't been good for a lot of that time that you've been a fan. Those four years in a row that they went to the Super Bowl, they were fantastic. Those teams were awesome. I wish they had won at least a couple of those. But they haven't been good since that last Super Bowl appearance until the last two or three right. years. So, you know, history maybe hopefully doesn't repeat itself. Yeah, I hope they win the whole thing. I, I'm <laughs> predicting that they so win the whole thing. So, yeah, that was uh, that's where I became a Bills fan. So, I, you know, that was that one year in Buffalo, formative year. Um and then uh, pretty much grew up in, in Chesterfield County. Okay. Part. Midlothian area? Uh, they, they weren't calling it Midlothian back then. We were we had a Richmond mailing address, but now it's called North Chesterfield. That's the new... <laughs> I don't even know what that means. It's a way to describe what part of the Chesterfield... And it was because was. what was happening, there was something with the tax money, People uh, because it was a Richmond mailing address, but it was the county. Mm. It's kind of like, uh, like there's a hand... You know, people that live... And Caroline have a Hanover mailing address because they live in the post office district. It's that kind of thing. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, cool. Right. What did you enjoy doing when your mom and dad weren't telling you what to do? Or you didn't have school? or? Uh, I was like a BMXer and a skateboarder. Okay. Um, I've ripped my knees open and had to have them stitched together by riding a skateboard. Um, when we first moved into the house in Chesterfield, it was a kind of like maybe when y'all moved in here. It was, a, it was new construction for the subdivision. Mm. So... Um, we had our driveway wasn't paved and but we had a, a concrete sidewalk that you could get a lot of speed and so we would go steal wood from the building sites and build this big ramp nice and ride the side of the skateboard down it go up the ramp and then of course land on your knees and bust your knees open yeah uh so did a lot of skateboarding uh then they came and paved the street really smooth and then you know we we're always out in the street riding our skateboard till our driveway got then our parents paved the driveway uh, we'd set up ramps, ride, you know, BMX bikes, go find the places around where people were riding and, you know, word of mouth. And then you're gone all day yeah, yeah. in the summer kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, skateboarding, I get because kids, when I was growing up, we got into skateboarding. BMX was not really a thing. And I guess when you're in a town setting like Silent Robin, I grew up in, it's not much of a thing, but it sounds like you could get out and about and yeah. get into the woods kind of thing. That's yeah. Cool. You'd always find the trails behind the school or you'd hear about stuff. You'd go try to find it. Um, sometimes you find places where guys are riding their motorcycles and, you know, you'd have to wait for them to finish before you could ride your bike, especially if you're a little kid. You know, oh, yeah. You, you don't want to mess with the guys <laughs> that had motorcycles. Right. Yeah, because they were all tough guys. Yeah. And then I started playing soccer um, in uh, Chesterfield, and that kind of carried me all the way through high school and into some college, you know, intramurals. I never played um, – I mean, I didn't play varsity or anything in college, but I played intramurals and um, uh, played some adult soccer, too, after I got out of college. Um, but then when it got to a point, I'd be too sore to do my regular job, which I guess we might get to here in a little <laughs> bit. I'd be too sore to actually uh, be safe and stuff. So, uh, Soccer, was soccer big back then? Um, we played, initially started, like the YMCA had a had a league right and then some guys started a house league mm. and then that led to select teams and then eventually i played for the original richmond strikers before oh. like everybody became the richmond strikers um i was on the uh i guess that was sixth grade i tried out um and made it um 
and I was a little surprised, and it was mostly a bunch of people from the West End. It was I was I think the only kid, maybe one other kid from south of the river. Mm. This is back when you had to pay to get across the river everywhere, oh, yeah. except for the Huguenot Bridge. <laughs> it was weird. <laughs> it's like they didn't want people crossing right. the river. They didn't. And uh, so we would play teams from Virginia Beach or Williamsburg or Northern Virginia, and, um, and uh, that was really formative. It was probably the best coaching I ever had. Mm. Um, but it just it didn't it wasn't sustainable because it was hard to get to practice. Um, and then the select league, the way the select leagues were being formed in the Chest in Chesterfield County was just as competitive and, and just more convenient and with my friends yeah. like, that I was going to be in middle school and high school with. Yeah, and it's probably still as competitive or pretty close to being probably. As competitive. Yeah, that's cool. All right, so when you think back to high school, w- were you more of a jock, a geek? How, how what label would other kids give you? Probably started off in ninth grade as a little bit of a geek. Um, you know, the awkward, I'm still kind of awkward. Um, 10th grade, things kind of change, tended to change a little bit because, uh, when I was in ninth grade, uh, I went to Manchester high school in Chesterfield. That was the first year they had a junior varsity soccer team. Cause there were just so many kids that were playing that it just, the demand was there. Yeah. Um, but we had to play before the varsity game. And our games were limited in time. It was almost just silly how short the games were. It wasn't really a like game. 20, like 20-minute 20 halves or something like Sounds that. Sounds like an exhibition kind of thing. Um, but then when I was in 10th grade, I played up on varsity some because I, I was relatively skilled. I mean, I didn't go on to do any great things with soccer. But, um, you know, people would get pulled up just like they do now. Sure. And so kind of started to get into that realm a little bit more of uh, being an athlete um, I didn't letter. I, I played var- full varsity my junior year. Uh, lettered my junior year, and then my senior year, same thing. I was a captain of the soccer team, but then I was also a kicker for the football team, and that changed a lot. That's when I guess I turned into a jock, as you say. Um, the young ladies like like football players, and um, I always seem you know, I always seem to have to be dating some girl. Um, but uh, soccer was really my. Uh, I kicked a few field goals, some extra points. We we went two and two and eight. 10, 10 game season. It wasn't really much. Was it nerve wracking kicking field goals? Um, it happened so fast. I mean, it's it's more nervous being on the sidelines. So these guys that you see, then the pros are different. But in college, the anxiety level of these guys thinking they might get in field goal range has got to be off the charts. Because I had it in high school. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And nothing, it didn't matter. And I remember one time we hadn't scored, and I think. I don't know, two games or two and a half games of quarters, and then I kicked a field goal, and they almost picked me up. <laughs> I mean, that's how bad we were. <laughs> that's pretty bad. But I just always. But, but you were the first one to score in that yeah, many quarters. Yeah. I, but I always wanted to try it. I was always a soccer player. I always liked football, just was didn't play it growing up. It just wasn't something that was part of our family culture, I guess. Yeah. Uh, my dad played baseball, so that's what we, me and my brother kind of started at. Right. Um, but I always wanted to try it. And so the guy that was the kicker that was good, you know, he had gone off to college. The coach that the season before was a winning season. That coach left. He knew the talent that was coming up. And um, I was like, you know, this is it. I'm a senior. I, I went out. I mean, nobody else went out for the kicker. So me and the punter hung out. And sometimes when they're hitting a the sled after practice, we'd hide. <laughs> <laughs> like most punters and kickers. Yeah. So yeah. the only story I have from that – other than just you know kicking some field goals and had a couple a couple touchbacks, was um, on one kickoff return. I don't remember what game it was, what part of the season, but this is what gave me complete respect for guys that play 
all the whole game. I got hit blindsided on a kick return. I got up. I didn't even know which way to go to find my tee. And I didn't even know which way was the sideline I needed to go to. And I was sore the whole weekend from one hit. Yeah. No, I believe it. And so I got a lot of respect for these guys at the playing pain. Oh, they. And they, I love the game. I love watching it. Um, it's just it just wasn't something I you know was for me physically. So anyway. Yeah, those, those they're guys that take hits like that. I don't know once or twice a game every game. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, I don't understand it. Cool. Uh, you mentioned going to college. Where'd you go to school? I went to James Madison University. Okay. Did you like JMU? Oh yeah, best four four years and two summers of my life. <laughs> Two summers because your uh, major was really hard, or because no, no, I uh, kind of majored in. Uh, I was thinking about this before I came over. How do I explain? I kind of mar- uh, majored in what you know, kegology kind of thing. <laughs> I mean, I know that sounds like a cliche, but um, well, my, you're, you're being accurate though. Right? Yeah, my yeah. freshman year, I almost I was on academic probation um, after my uh, first semester freshman year, despite the A in kegology. Just you know, it got the best of me. I wasn't like that in high school. Um, you know, there'd be some beer parties at Manchester, might go to them. But, you know, I, my dad warned me. He said, don't, you're not going to drive the car. And if you're going to, I said that you're just not going to do that. So right. I didn't. Um, I heeded that. Uh, if I was being picked up, that was kind of a different story if somebody else was driving. But, but when I got off to college, it was uh, just, wow, this is, this is the best I've ever had, blah, blah, blah. Um, I got back in my sophomore, well, I was able to go back the second semester of my freshman year. Um, it wasn't that bad, but it was pretty bad. My dad talked with me and said, look, you know, you have to decide why you're there. He said, we can, you know, we can pay for your college, but you're going to pay for some of what you messed up, Kyle. You're going to pay for some of it now because, you know, we've, we've got four years. We can pay for four years. Um, so I had to go two summers to get out in four years to kind of make up for that. So I technically was a sociology major, you know, the hardest one they have. Um, <laughs> no, no, no offense for all the sociology. No, I, I was actually really interested in it. I wrote some good papers um, and I uh, studied, you know, deviance, criminology. I uh, minored in criminal justice, political science. Um, I really got finally got in gear and, and got a good education. I just had to go a couple summers to, and I think one summer I took golf um, <laughs> to get the credits. Sure. Uh, but I got out. Uh, I was there from 87 to 91, so I graduated in, uh, in August of 91 that summer. And why that's significant is because they had uh, just recently switched to graduation in the stadium mm. because of uh, the amount of students that were there. Right. Uh, my sister graduated from there in 89, and so she graduated in May of 89 in the stadium and it snowed at that time. I remember it was really weird to have it snowing in May in Harrisonburg. But then when I graduated because of the summer group, it was a lot smaller. We graduated on the quad out in front of Wilson Hall, which was the traditional place for the graduation. And it was uh, just made for some great pictures. And um, I always thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. So in August graduation ended up working out. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Uh, Sociology. I took uh, one sociology class. I actually really enjoyed it. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's a ton to learn. Most people, the average person doesn't realize how much there is uh, within sociology. Yeah, I mean, when you break down the science of how people interact with each other, uh, how they indicators they have. I mean, the, 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 all the stickers that people put on the back of their car—that's all sociology, and that's studied. Yeah. I mean, look how much you can read. Those are called indicators. Look how much you can read from people, just whatever they have on their car. Even if they have like one or two stickers, you yeah. can kind of tell maybe the perspective on life. The fact that they only have one is part of the, their their makeup, right? <laughs> right. And the ones that have like fifty, you're like what's going on there? Right. Yeah. Cool. Uh, so you graduate. 
what did you think you were going to do with your degree? At that point in time, I kind of thought I wanted to, I always knew I wanted to help people. I just didn't know how or where I was going to end up. Um, you know, I wasn't a business major. I didn't study finance. Um, so I just wasn't geared that way. And my dad was in business. Um, and, uh, well, actually, it's a separate story. If I hadn't got into JMU, I was going to be going to VMI. <laughs> it's a very different experience. Yeah, um, but I ended up getting into JMU. But, um, and that maybe that led to why I ended up going into public service later. Uh, later. But I always knew I wanted to help people. I just didn't know what facet that was going to be in. I mean, I had been involved in stuff at my church throughout my formative years. Our parents directed us towards that. Nothing was forced or anything, but that's what our family did. We were charitable people. And I felt like that's what I wanted to do, and I just didn't really know what. Um, now, in early early 90s, there wasn't a whole lot of jobs out there. You and I graduated the same year. Okay, so um, maybe you uh, recall. And so I... Um, didn't really know at that point that I wanted to go into law enforcement. Um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I didn't graduate with a true focus, but I did have a job. I had gotten a job at a nonprofit um, that was the, the jail services in Chesterfield County. So I knew I would get some experience in the criminal justice system, if nothing else. You know, you meet people. Um, and I had done an internship in college at the Stanton Correctional Center mm. working with sex offenders. And that was... Um, a very eye-opening experience. Matter of fact, the guy I interned with, uh, his name was Butch Robinson. His real name was Furbin Robinson. Um, he was at JMU. He played football at JMU when Gary Clark was there. So mm-hmm. it was um, he was a little bit younger, and so there, he would tell these stories, and it was fun working with him. He was a little um, not reckless, but uh, just uh, very open with the way he would talk and stuff. And but when he was working with the offenders, he was very serious and. And so he kind of mentored me a little bit, and I thought, you know, I want, I kind of, want, this is interesting to me. We're, I mean, not necessarily helping sex offenders, but somehow doing some kind of work with them. But I just wasn't sure what I was exploring. So I got this job with the nonprofit, and just to show you how a small world it is, one of the other ladies in the office that I interned with was good friends with the lady of this hiring agency that I went to work for, and that was one of the reasons I got hired is because mm-hmm. they there was a, a good connection there, and I had done a decent job with the internship. Um, so I did that for, uh, I got out in August 91, I already, so like September of 91 to July of the following years, and then um, and that's when I applied to be a deputy in Chesterfield, and I got hired doing that. Yeah, you usually have to do something, whether it's college or another job before you become a police officer. Typically, high school graduates don't go directly into police work. Right, and back then, the police agencies, which I had done some applications to, just, you I mean, what did I have to lose? I was I had the age, I was 21. Um, you had to pretty much have previous experience as another police officer somewhere else or military experience. Mm. And so that, that was going to make you over 21, over 22, pretty much, you know. So, But they're always hiring people to work the back of a jail. Always. Because nobody wants to do it. It's a tough job. And it does have turnover. Um, but I applied there, uh, I guess, the summer of 92. And I started with Chesterfield July 20th of 92. And I uh, worked there for the next six years. I mean, it was a good job. And you were back of the jail? Um, back of the jail for a little while. got a couple promotions. I mean, I had college, so... They were doing things a lot of ant- very antiquated there. I mean, there was some, some stuff that was being done by hand, which I, I was like, we can get a computer and do this stuff a lot easier. Oh, but we've always done it this way. You're, t- I, you're talking about pen and paper for a bunch of stuff? Yeah, like yeah. log books and stuff that 
man, we can automate this and save this and we don't have all these things in a closet anymore. But, you know, I don't want to knock them. And Carl Leonard's down there now. He's done some outstanding stuff. But um, so I got a couple promotions. And so it was it was worth staying there for a while. Because I was making good money for or, you know, mid nineties. Yeah, your your buddies probably weren't making as much as you were. Most of them. Um, some of the well, they were getting the, they were getting their start at Signet, which you know <laughs> it turned out to be Capital One. But um, it was a good career. Uh, after a while, I got uh, moved over to do some administrative stuff. Um, but I felt like I was had gotten promoted a little too quick for my age and experience level. I mean, sometimes I think this sometimes might happen in the military, and you can. I, I mean, I've seen it in movies. I guess if it's a true depiction where. You know, the lieutenant's a little too young. He don't have nearly experience. He's just got the authority. Right. And um, and if you look at yourself in the mirror, you got to be, you know, you got to feel confident with what you're seeing. So I decided to make a change and, and completely start over. Uh, what had happened back in 92, the same time I started working at Chessfield, um, I had applied with Hanover Sheriff's Office. Didn't get hired. Um, I knew that Stuart Cook had been the sheriff up here and was making a lot of changes. There was always good stuff in the paper. You know, back then that was the only way to get get news. You know, <laughs> two papers: Richmond, uh, the New uh, Times Dispatch, and the News League. Yeah, we had a morning in and afternoon. Yeah, yeah. and um, I didn't get hired, but uh, I kind of said, well, you know, someday let me get some experience. Um, I was having a lot of fun working with Chesterfield. I worked with some great people. Um, it was a violent place. Uh, it was it was exciting. I know that sounds kind of weird, but it was exciting. You, you're handling a lot of volatile stuff. Um, you're trying to, and we had an overcrowded jail, so you had to get, you had to be clever on how to handle uh, some of these situations, where to put people, somebody causing a problem, where do you move them until you can solve another problem, because then you have all these people that can't go in the same housing area together, because right. they'll fight. Um, so it became you know, an interesting uh, challenge on how to figure that out. Eventually, I was a shift supervisor. Um, you know, we had a jail of over 500 inmates, which is a medium, considered medium size. And then I got uh, another guy. Something happened to the personnel guy. Um, I don't know if he got demoted or I got reassigned over to personnel and training. And for the jail or for for the sheriff, whole sheriff's office. It gotcha. was about 200 sworn. The sheriff's office in Chesterfield ran the jail, the courts, and did all the civil process. And of course, there was a county police department for patrol right. and criminal stuff. So. I mean, it was a lot of authority for, for my age. Um, I liked it. It just, uh, I was like, man, you know, I was peers with some people who been there 15, 18 years, and this was it for them. And I'm like, I, I just see myself in an administrative office position before age 30, frankly. Right. Yeah. Um, so at that time, my wife, Monica, was working for, I think it was, I think it was cap. It had become Capital One at that point. Uh, She's making good corporate money, um, but burning the men out old, you know, yeah. kind of thing. And uh, so we decided to make a change. At this point, we were we had bought a we had gotten married in '95, bought a house in the Fan District, and we decided to move to Hanover. When I got hired, I said, "Look, it's going to be it was eight thousand dollar pay cut, um, but it was the best decision I ever made." What was it about Hanover that attracted the two of you in the first place? Hanover was a rural county, but also had a large suburban service area like Mechanicsville. Um, and what had happened with my experience in Chesterfield was that even though Chesterfield was a large county, maybe 250,000 people back then, I think it's over 300,000 now, I was surprised how many people I knew that got locked up. Mm. I'm like... 
people I went to high school with, yeah. people I just knew. And I'm thinking, man, I'm running into people that I just, I felt like I needed to get out of Chesterfield where I grew up. Yeah. And not everybody's like that. I mean, I've always had respect for people that, you know, they grow up in a community and then they go back and they serve it. It just, it just wasn't my, Chesterfield was just too big for what I wanted to experience, they I grew, guess. They grew really fast. Yeah. So I knew Hanover was not quite like that yet and had an excellent reputation. Um, it really did. As a county or the police? Uh, the law enforcement yeah. agency. Yeah. And so, you know, I did some looking into it. Monica and I uh, drove up here. We looked around to see if this is the kind of community we want to live in. Because I, I wanted to live where I was going to, if I was going to get hired there and police there, I wanted to live there. Um, so on the last day of the hiring, pro, uh, the, the application um whatever the, the window of opportunity is to, to turn it in, um, I applied. And the reason I did that is because I had run into, uh, I was going to a defensive tactics instructor school with Matt McGrain, who Silent Rob knows. I love that you're calling him Silent Rob. <laughs> and, um, and I, you know, I just told him, hey, you know, I applied up there. And he was an investigator with Hanover. And I said, hey, I applied back there in 92. And but I had this good career going in Chesterfield, but I was thinking about making a change. He said, dude, what do you have to lose? He said, if you're thinking about it, you'll always be thinking about it. Mm. So I went up on the last day. Believe it or not, I hand-filled out the application in the lobby. Did you have a digital option? Could you have done it on a computer? It wasn't there, there yet. Oh, wow. And I'll tell you that. I'm the one that came up with that when I was working <laughs> at Hanover. You're like, it's Chesterfield guys haven't figured it out. Well, I, I, didn't, I didn't. I came up with it, but it was uh, somebody else's idea, but I was the officer that put it into practice. Well, innovation is 5% yeah. idea, 95% right. actually getting it done. So I got a, uh, and I took the written test. Took the physical agility test. I got the oral thing, polygraph background, all that. Uh, I was also in the process at the same time with the Louisa Sheriff's Office, and I got an offer around the same time from both. I'm like, man, I got to go with Hanover. There's a little more action in Hanover, so, not much more. That was 1998, and uh, that's where I did my whole career. Okay. Well, except for the some years at Chesterfield, which all counts in Virginia retirement system. As it should. <laughs> As Well, yeah, I mean, it would be silly if it didn't, right? Yeah. Yeah, uh, so 24 years. Did you start patrol? Or were you I did, it? I did. I So I had, um, because when I was at Chesterfield, you don't, there's different certification in, in criminal justice. So you have civil process certification, court security certification, jail certification, and then law enforcement certification. So I needed to get that, and that's where Rob and I met in the police academy. He did, He only needed a few weeks to, to do Virginia stuff to supplement his federal, because you had been to a federal academy, I think. Um, I went through the whole thing because Hanover wanted everybody. It didn't matter if you were coming from another police agency. You were going to completely start over. That's since changed because you can't get people to apply at your place now if you got to go yeah. to another academy. But that's how it was then. Um, I was fine with that. I said, I'm just going to learn everything from scratch. Even though I already had experience dealing with people, I knew how to move prisoners, search them. You know, I already had firearms training. But I, was, I didn't think I knew it all. I, I knew I was going to learn a lot. And I did. And uh so yeah, started off in patrol on uh, on the evening shift when I got out of the academy. And the evening shift is like night going into the morning hours kind of thing. Um, back then we worked a uh, five days on, three days off. So and it was permanent shift. So uh, day shift was six thirty to three thirty, and uh, evenings was two to two to eleven, I think. And then midnights came in at they worked ten to seven. So there's overlap on each one. Right. So yeah, I got pretty used to that. But you always had to have your car clean. I mean, your day was like 10 hours plus. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, get, putting all your uniform stuff on. Uh, but I liked it a lot. I learned a lot. 
I imagine that was the most active uh, part of the day, too. It was. I mean, you worked. They wanted you already out working and not just coming on duty when people started wrecking their cars during the evening rush hour or whatever. Um, and that way you come in early enough so the guys who work days can finish off the reports and get off on time. The whole point is to get off on time. Every, you know, There's no point in working over unless you're stuck out on something major. Right. Uh, how many uh, calls did you get per shift sort of thing? Oh, uh, it depended on where you worked in the county. So... Everything was on one radio frequency. So if you're working out in Beaver Dam, you're probably not going to get, I don't know, are we allowed to cuss? <laughs> sure. You ain't going to get shit probably <laughs> until it gets dark and, you, you know, somebody <laughs> wrecks the car into a tree or whatever if they're drunk or domestic start, you know, but you would just hear the calls go one after the other in, in Mechanicsville uh, because there's a lot more people there. Sure. Um, so depending on where you worked, I, I tended to work central. Um, Ashland was in my patrol area, but we didn't patrol Ashland because they had their own police department, but you'd have to cut through there. So that was very advantage. It was, pla- it was places to eat. Right. I could slip home. I lived on Mount Herman Road. I could slip home if I needed to. Um, if you worked uh, the area where you patrolled, if you, I mean, if you lived in the area where you patrolled, you were allowed to go to your house. But if you, um, you we'd have to get permission to go out outside your patrol area. And most of the time you could, as long as you're not spending too much time outside your patrol area. Oh, you remember that, um, but you get it was enough to keep you busy. I mean, it wasn't. You had plenty of time for traffic stops and, and what they call discretionary time, you know. And you could, uh, I mean, a lot of times you stop cars. People are wanted, find drugs in the car. What's the crazy stop you can talk about? Oh, uh, I, well, this is the crazy. Okay, this is the craziest stop, but it was not. It was not a traffic stop. <laughs> okay. Um, but it became a DUI arrest. So uh, me and my training officer were sitting at what used to be the Overhill Texaco on 33 at Overhill Drive. Now it's BP or Exxon or whatever. And we're just sitting there, and it's dark, and it's probably maybe 10, 10.30, whatever. And this lady pulls up next to us and rolls down her window and is like, can you all tell me how to get to t- back to 295? i got to get to Chessfield. I'm drunk as shit. <laughs> Wait a minute. You heard a Mark car? Mark car. <laughs> She was really drunk. We get her out. Uh, you could smell it. And I, what I tell people is that that commercial on TV, when an officer comes up and the guy rolls the window down and it's like the liquid just flows out, that's how overwhelming alcohol is wow. to someone who's completely sober when you've had two, three beers. Yeah. I mean, it is, you can really, it's overwhelming. Um, so you could smell it off her. So we put her through some field sobriety. So it wasn't that cooperative. Uh, but that based on her performance on field sobriety, based on her statements, um, she got arrested for DUI, and then she proceeded to piss all over the back of my car just to show me. You think she did it intentionally, or she? Uh, she so said much? she was. Um, she said she had to go. You're not letting me stop. Like you know, most people can't hold it. Adults can. I don't sure. know how many she had. She would. She wasn't that cooperative. But that was probably the craziest because it just that's the kind of stuff that happens to you in patrol. Sometimes you don't even have to go looking for it. I mean, I've always made this joke over my career. Like, police work is, uh, good police work is knowing what to do when the shit's right in front of you mm. and not fucking it up. Yep, yep. Because <laughs> yep. there are guys that'll fuck it up. Sure. <laughs> no, I, I, so I'm, I laughed uh, at uh, this woman being drunk and talking to you guys and asking where 295 was. By the way, she was less than a half a mile away. She was very close. She probably went yeah. the wrong way both times and just couldn't find the exit. Drunk driving is not funny, but she was taken care of that night because you guys were there. Well, she was dumb enough to stop and yeah. ask you where 295 was. But, uh, wow, I, I've never heard a story like that. And there, Well, I'll tell you about another stop. There's, um, I don't know if it was the craziest. It's hard to think of the craziest off the top of my head, but ones that are significant. 
um, this was a Richmond firefighter. And um, usually my, my code was I never wrote cops or firefighters. I mean, you have discretion sure. when you're out on the road, uh, kind of depending on what they were doing and, and what their demeanor was. Because they're serving the community yeah, as well. And, yeah, and um, I always thought the last thing I want to do was drive in a manner where someone has to stop me and do whatever. So, But we got a call for service for a guy who um, was having a domestic with his wife because he was too lazy. He had uh, was it was during winter time. Remember that. He had uh, delayed in putting all the Christmas decorations up in the attic, and his wife had gotten pissed off. So he finally got to it. He's up there, and she closes the uh, the attic push door. up door yeah. or whatever. He can't get out, and uh, he eventually stomps on it enough where he um, falls out and falls on his back. Apparently, well, so they're having this domestic, and uh, he had been drinking and he was intoxicated, according to the wife. And so uh, he gets in the car and says he's got to go to the hospital. And so he's leaving the house. And um, Y'all are we, there? At this well, time? We, no, we're getting the, the call for service comes over the uh, radio. And so uh, it was in my area. And, and so two of us were looking for this vehicle. And I was right in the area. And I saw him going to Memorial Regional. And I stopped him, like right at the entrance. And, um, and uh, all, he, all he showed me was when I got up and I said, you know, sir, uh, I need to see your license registration. Reason I stopped you, blah, blah, blah. We got a call, da, 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 da. He's like, this is all you need to see. And he's showing me his fire ID. I'm like, well. Do you, do you know who I am kind of Right. Thing. He was a Richmond fire captain. And that I don't take that personally. That's not what I asked for. I asked for his license and his registration. I told him why I stopped him. He's like, this is all you need to see. Mm. So we didn't get too far. Finally got that stuff. Um, but he, he was intoxicated. You, like I said, you could smell it. And he just wasn't. He just wasn't being cooperative. And so I did feel sobriety in the car, Silent Rob. Fingers, I uh, did the head. I, mean, I knew that wasn't going to fly. And so, of course, I called a supervisor on a, a, a channel, a private channel, and said, look, this is what I got. I mean, this guy's driving himself to the hospital. He is intoxicated. He's, his car's in the roadway. I didn't stop him. I'm, you know, He didn't make it to private property. One of those, oh, Oh, they made it to their driveway, but boy, they're, I can tell they're drunk. You're like, ah, you can't really arrest somebody in the front yard, but you saw them driving on the road. You know they're intoxicated. It's that gray area. Um, he said, well, you do what you got to do. Don't worry about the, the fire captain thing. So I arrested him for DUI. Mm. We got his blood, and um, he got a good lawyer, and he got uh, convicted of reckless driving, and that's how that works. Yeah, I mean, I, I get it's it. It's nothing I, personal. Yeah, no, I get it. Um, My job was to, um, I've always said, to arrest means to stop. It doesn't mean to fuck with. It doesn't mean to ruin your life. It just means to stop. Yeah. Well, his wife called. He was drunk. I didn't know where he was going. He said he was going to the hospital. Turns out he had a big welt on his back. Yeah. Um, he probably was going. What do I do? Let him just keep driving? I don't know. Well, if he's not a fire captain, right? If he's not a public servant, you're you're definitely... So when, when you stop somebody and they say, this is all you need to see, you're, you're being belittled. They're not letting you do your job. And there have been times I've stopped other... I stopped one guy one time. It turned out he was a state troop uh, special agent on surveillance. All he did was hang his badge out the window. I'm like, I'm not even bothered. Why even go up there? Yeah. It was just for an inspection sticker or something. It wasn't even... <laughs> yeah, like, I get it. You just get back in the car and you clear up. <laughs> so it, it, in 24, you ready to go? I was just going to say... We'll put the mic in front of you, man. Sorry. All right. I'm talking I was just going to say... No, it's what you said. 
I always, my thing was the same thing. If you were in public service, I want military. I wasn't really going to mess with you right. unless you really had something going on. Also, if you had my birthday. But I always <laughs> said that if you gave me the ounce of respect I deserved as a human, not even the badge or the uniform, just as a human, and you didn't do stuff like that, then you had a 60% chance of getting off with me. You know? mm-hmm. so. And we were encouraged to give advice. Yeah. Um, especially with teenage drivers. Um, what's the point in writing them a ticket and having them go to court? You can do more right there on the side of the road and, and then calling their parents. Yep. Now, if their parents just basically tell you to fuck off, uh, well, then that's a whole different story. You stroke out a summons, I'll see you in court and let Judge Gilman handle it. Yeah, well, and you're, you're uh, man, parents who don't. There's get, plenty get of them, but there's others that will do more than you ever can yeah. to correct that, correct that child. Um, Oh, gosh, I, I even had a kid want, want me to be a reference for him. I, there was a guy I arrested. I said, you sure you want people to know how I know you? <laughs> you treat people right um, the way you want to be treated, you're, you're going to have a good career. Yeah, well, and good things happen in general. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you weren't patrol the entire 24 years. What did you do besides? Uh, um, I was with Hanover from 98 to 2019. So that was uh, 21. I did 27 years, actually, all told. So I was only with Hanover for 21. But I did... Um, because I had that administrative experience in Chessfield, making more money, I got this administrative label in Hanover shortly after I got there. So I was in patrol 98 to uh, right before my daughter was born, 2001. I wanted to do five years in patrol because I was kind of told this guy named Richard Farmer kind of mentored me a little bit. He said, you do five years in patrol before you do anything else. You got to get credibility. Yeah. And I wanted that. That's the whole reason I left Chessfield, came to Hanover. I wanted to get credibility working the road working cases um demonstrating that i you know how to handle myself I, that's just that's what i wanted i wanted that i mean it was to me that looked valuable and uh so but i, I got approached saying hey we know you worked in chesterfield personnel officer is going to be rotating out uh you've been kind of selected to fill his role what do you think of that you know i'm so new there i'm afraid to you're afraid to turn that was kind of a lateral promotion in a way it's not um it's not a promotion by money but you're you're being promoted into a monday through friday position basically eight to five and there are fewer of those right yeah and uh that's valuable to to some um so i was afraid to say no so i took it um my daughter was born in 2001 during that time um that was also the time when um, the towers fell um, so that had a big impact on just that time of, of my life as it did many other people. Uh, but I just wasn't happy there. I mean, I had thoughts of, uh, you know, applying to law school, mm. like maybe this isn't my path. I, I don't want to be an administrative path here. I wanted to have more control over where my career was going and I wanted more time in patrol before I thought about doing something else. Cause, um, because what I eventually ended up doing was what I still had in my mind is like, I want to do patrol, learn how to do investigations, and start working into catching sex offenders. And that's what I wanted to do. I just didn't know how to get there, but I knew working in personnel and helping get the application where you could do it online. I knew that wasn't my path there. Right. Uh, but it was a step in that, in that direction, maybe kind of a side step before I could get to the forward step. So I put in for a transfer request to come out. And uh, that rubbed the uh, sergeants that I worked for at the time. It kind of rubbed him wrong because um, it was a little confusion on who I was actually reporting to. Was I reporting to the training sergeant, even though I was just the personnel officer, or was I reporting to the training and uh, personnel lieutenant? 
wasn't really sure. Um, I hadn't really had an evaluation done yet, so I wasn't really sure. So I put my transfer request into the lieutenant that rubbed the sergeant wrong. I got a kind of a crappy evaluation, uh, which I kind of challenged because we were doing Scantron. We, I was doing all the new hiring testing, like at Lee Davis, you'd get you know, 200, 300 people show up. You'd do it over a few days, a few weekends. And um, I was doing the Scantron. You know, you'd find out right then if you passed the te written test, and then we'd schedule it for an interview before you left. Um, and I was going out on leave with my daughter, and our Scantron uh, thing had some ink problems. And I made sure that the machine was working all this before I left. And uh, in my evaluation of the one thing, I don't know why this burns me to this day. It's, it's, so it's, long it's, ago. it's obviously bothersome. Um, I hadn't thought about it in a while, but it was like, you know, Officer Claire has to be told numerous times to do certain things. I said, well, you need, can you give me an example? I learned working in Chesterfield, writing evaluations. If you're going to criticize, you better have at least one example. Yep. It may be better, two or three. Oh, well, I remember I had to tell you several times you had to get that ink cartridge done. I'm like, man, you got to be kidding me. So I was glad I transferred out. I went back to patrol. I thought for sure that I was going to go to um, uh, back to evenings. I, that's what I requested. I had done some midnight shifts before I went into personnel, um, and that wasn't too bad. I got put back on day shift, what they call day lilies uh, in Hanover. They call them day lilies. It's the midnight rollers. The day lilies and evening shift doesn't have a nickname. Because that's the core shift. And um, so I learned how to do a lot more traffic stuff, funeral escorts, um, warrant service. Um, met a lot more people at headquarters. And uh, in 2003, I got approached by the same mentor, um, Richard Farmer. He asked me if I was interested in investigations. And at that point in time, I felt like I had enough experience to, to do that. And I became an investigator in October of 2003. You had mentioned earlier uh, investigations and you wanted to catch sexual predators what was it about uh sex predators that this was before the internet obviously um when i was working at the stanton correctional center um and i would go there tuesday thursday i think i did it for the whole summer i just drive down from harrisonburg and uh i remember i always had to park on a hill because i had one of those volkswagens that didn't always start you had to pop the clutch and um part of my uh, job there was to read the institutional files of people coming up for parole and some of these guys you know been in there a long time their files are that big and it's just amazing to read what they were convicted of doing the summaries victim statements it was just mesmerizing that there are people that uh, dig so far into learning how to interview these people convict them and put them in the penitentiary so they can't you know offend anymore uh, you know, the whole the sex offender registry, the whole reason we have that is because we can't keep them in prison. Mm. You got to get them to uh, uh, admit guilt or uh, plead to a lesser offense so your victim doesn't have to testify, but they go on the registry, but they get less prison time. Right. And um, so I just, I had this weird interest in it. I'm not sure. And I, I always did kind of feel that that was kind of strange, um, you know, but there are people that, you know, when I worked in the correctional center, there's people who specialize in that. There's doctors that specialize. I mean, I, a whole new world was opened up to me. And uh, so I knew that Hanover had people that do that. Um, so once I got into investigations, um, I just kind of started working my way towards that. Uh, there was another investigator there who was doing that stuff because a guy named Bob Schwartz had retired. So uh, she moved into that position. I kind of made it known that I was interested in that. And almost immediately, I started doing those kinds of cases. Mm. Um, and I, they now have this specialized way that you interview children, but I got it. I kind of got it on the job. It's called Child First. 
I kind of got it on the job training on how do you interview a five, six-year-old who's alleged a, a sex offense against them. How do you how do you get the information from them where you're not you know ruining their psyche, and oh. you can use that interview in court yeah. if you have to, because um, you have to evaluate. Basically, you're evaluating their their uh, value as a witness. Um, of course, you want to get the bad guy, but you you can't um, can't skip any steps. So, um, and no, it didn't seem like anybody else wanted to do it. Like when I was in patrol, nobody wanted to patrol the air park. I said, I'll do it. Man, 400 businesses in there. There's probably all kinds of wanted people. Right. Nobody wanted to, oh, because you get all the vandalism reports or larceny reports. People come back to work on Monday and all their shit stolen and you're taking reports on just dumbass shit <laughs> all morning. And you're hungry because you ain't had your yogurt or your bagel or whatever. You haven't got your coffee or, you know, you might be past lunch. And uh, I was like, I'll do it. And so I've met business owners and stuff. And um, I tried to make the most of the situation. So I kind of worm squeezed my way into... Uh, interviewing sex offenders, but I still had to carry a load of other stuff. And um, it was around that time <laughs> that people were starting to steal catalytic converters. Mm. And would you believe I made a case on one, so I became Hanover's expert. <laughs> so I became the scrap metal guru, and I was doing sex offense. I was like, man, what kind of what kind of career is this? Uh, but not, I, not one you saw coming. I, I didn't see that coming. The, the metal larcenies were interesting because... Um, you had to act on it kind of quick, and you had to get in the car and go down to Muse Cores or Richmond Recycling, and you had to see what, what got turned in this morning. You know, is that from a Ford Econo van, or is that from a Honda? You had to learn the lingo, and you'd learn the, the people in the scrap yards. I know the lady that uh, works at Muse Cores, if you didn't bring your lunch, you weren't getting any information. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> she liked to eat. She liked, uh, and you, they always tell you from Hanover, especially the pawn shops, because you always had a coat and tie on. Like, oh, you from Hanover, what do you need? <laughs> That's funny. Uh, so eventually, um, the uh, other investigator that was handling sex offenses, she got promoted out of there. I kind of became the main person. Another guy named Chris Davis came in. He had previous experience doing sex uh, sex offense cases. And we're talking uh, offenses against children and other adults. And sometimes it's you know mixed gender or same gender. So you have to you have to understand the dynamics about how people will behave sexually. Uh, we used to always joke that, um, uh, you know, sometimes you had to do research at your desk on your computer on the county's network on porn sites just to see what people are talking about. And we would always, that was always a big joke. Oh, like, yeah. oh, I know about that. It's too bait. And I've seen that. <laughs> <laughs> or that's Pornhub or, or what have you. But um, so eventually I was kind of doing it full time, especially when um, Hanover got on. Uh, the FBI was starting a task force called Innocent Images. And it was a national task force, a national initiative. And they're trying to get the buy-in of local agencies because they just don't have enough agents to address the uh, proliferation of child pornography that was just being traded online. I mean, especially after the internet and file sharing. And um, I went out on a search warrant to help out. And all I did was search the attic in like 35 degrees and I didn't complain. And apparently they came back to Hanover and said, do you think Cliz would be interested in this? Mm. I'm like, hell yeah. I got some of the best training on cyber stuff, cyber crimes, peer-to-peer file sharing, um, all, uh, all kinds of stuff that I didn't really understand that before that. Uh, and then that morphed into what was then was called the Child Explo- Exploitation Task Force. And then that joined with the Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force, which was more state-based. And we were part of the Southern Virginia ICAC, ICAC, Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force. 
And at that point, it just it developed into multi-jurisdiction cases, um, helping out other jurisdictions, sending out leads, multiple search warrants in Hanover. Um, and then you, you know, then the app started coming around, and this Kick app was probably the worst thing I ever saw, at least in my career, because there was no centralized server. Mm. That any data going through Kick, if you maybe you're familiar with it, if you have to. The Kick app is out of Canada, which made it even worse, and it had no centralized server. So if you had an offender communicating with a juvenile in your county, none of that data is on a server that you can subpoena or do a search warrant on. Mm. So you got to get it off your offender's device or the victim's device. Uh, but fortunately, Canada was uh, would would take service of a U.S. subpoena, believe it or not, because mm. they wanted to continue to do business in the United States. Sure. Um, so you you would get some of these cases that would start in Hanover, and then once you identify your offender, you realize they're offending against juveniles in other states, and you you're obligated to follow up as best you can, and send it, your information to a guy in Wyoming who might be on the ICAC task force because they're all supposed to have the same training that that we did. Sometimes you'd get a go getter, sometimes you get a guy that doesn't give a crap. I mean that's just the way it is. Sure. Um, so it just morphed into uh, that was full time. And then we were doing uh, undercover work in Hanover, making cases. And you, undercover work? Undercover online work. Okay. Yeah. There's a distinction. Yes. Um, which uh, arguably could probably be uh, just, as, just as dangerous because, uh, you know, we've had offenders kill themselves. We go to their house. We do a search warrant. Uh, we don't have enough to arrest them that time. You know, you hear later they're hanging. I mean, it's, it's just the way it is. Uh, and it's, I know it sounds bad, but that's what people do. Yeah. Well, look, the the typical person, I believe, in the world or in this country is not a deviant in that way. You were immersed in deviant behavior. Yeah. I mean, did, did it change who you were in any way? It does. And that's a good question because um, we got training. Uh, let me back up a little bit. As part of the federal side... I had an appointment every year where I went and got a, an evaluation. I was evaluated. And I liked it because I got to go up there and talk about my mother-in-law for an hour. <laughs> I need that. And, you know, they do the baseline, 600 question, whatever. And over time, I was on the task force from 09 to when I retired in 19. So my folder about that point, you, you can't lie. And there was no point in lying. Um, so you get the evaluation. Basically, the, the assignment was voluntary. Um, I always wanted to stay in it, and when I saw, you know, I was turning 50 in 2019, and I saw a light at the end of the horizon, I said, I think I can do this the rest of my career, and I, I'd like to go out like this. Um, the local guys that were not on that federal task force, and they kind of intermingled. Um, to give you an example, the reason it was so lucrative is because you would go, you, say you did a federal search warrant at a residence in Hanover County, and... The feds sometimes are very reluctant to do an on-scene arrest because they got to get permission from the U.S. attorney for everything. But there's violations of state law right there. Well, we're going to make an arrest on a state code violation. And that's where the task force is valuable. Where if it was just the federal FBI doing it... They'd never get it done. They, yeah, that's why they, they, a lot of times they leave people there. Like this one they did the other day. This, this guy in front of the abortion clinic apparently assaulted somebody October of last year. And then they just arrested him. I, I don't know. You know, I don't understand all the details on that, but it was a good partnership. We used them for resources and training. They used us to kind of clean up some stuff that needed to be cleaned up at the time. 
Um, it was a good partnership. I, I took full advantage of it. Um, but the guys that were just on the ICAC side, in at Crimes Against Children, which was based out of Bedford County, they didn't have that advantage of having this yearly evaluation. We, it was something that Hanover tried to uh, implement, and I think it's there now from what I understand. Um, but I had it. But even though I had the evaluations and I had training to recognize signs of, um, they call it um, fati uh, stress fatigue. Well, you're, you're stressing out because someone else, you're seeing other people being victimized to a point where you can't take immediate action. Um, and it does wear on you because you're human, you know? Sure. Um, I saw start seeing some signs of that. And um, just to give you some examples, you know, driving to work angrier than you've ever been, like at 7.15 in the morning. That's a sign that you're probably a bit stressed out crying spells for no reason at all. It's weird, right? It's very weird. And I was like, I was seeing some of this, but not to the point where my wife's a mental health therapist. So I, you know, I would talk to her a lot, but I saw some of that happen. And so, you know, I think there's a shelf life to uh, work in child exploitation material type of cases uh, because you have the mixed in there. You have the images and the material digital. Sometimes it's not. And then you have hands on offenders and, um, and especially when you save a kid from abuse because of something that you've been able to detect online, I mean, that's, a, that's the best situation there is, especially if it's in your own county. Right. Um, so I started seeing some signs that um, I think there's a shelf life to my ability. I mentored some other investigators. By this time, I was uh, teaching at a conference in Atlanta. Um, it was a national training on child exploitation. Um, people from all over the country were there. I made contacts all over the place. I mean, I would make contacts down at the conference in Atlanta people I would call and say, hey, I got a case near you. Who do I call that's going to do something? Because I didn't want to refer something to somebody that was just going to... just going to drop it, yeah. So, um, yeah, I got out uh, to that July of 2019 was my um, my retirement date, but I my last day was uh, May 17th of 2019. I had a lot of leave time built up. And um, it's not too often you get an intermission in, your, in life. I had six weeks. It's a long time. It's not a long time. It, well, at the end, it seems short, but boy, at the beginning, it felt good. And um, I went out when I felt like I was on top of the world with my uh, with my service to the community uh, and, you know, to the country in a way, because I was on a federal task force helping out in the state. And uh, I don't have any bitterness. I come across other retirees from time to time, and, and they just, they hate everybody. They hated their service because they felt wronged or whatever. I had a couple hiccups along the way, man, but, you know, I had a good career, and it helped a lot of people, and that's what I got to do. And that's, that's, and that's what you wanted to do. That's what I would, always wanted to do. Yeah, that's great. I appreciate your service a lot. Thank uh, you. you went through some stuff that uh, I, I wouldn't wish on anybody. I, you've been exposed to things that I, I can't even fathom, um, but you're on the other side of it now, and, and you're still doing your thing. So let's, let's talk about something a little more uplifting. Yeah. Why would anybody run more than two miles? To see how far they can go. <laughs> All right, so let me, let, me start, let me start with this. Uh, you've, when you were a kid, you played soccer, you played football. Um, when did you know you liked running long distances? Uh, I knew I, was, I liked running long distances when, when I was involved with the, physical, the presidential physical fitness testing, which you probably remember. Sure. Um, I got it one year. Um, I always liked the 600 um, Felt like a really long distance. Yeah, it felt then. like a long distance. Uh, I usually... Uh, at least from that I recall, came in first or second or something. And I thought, wow, when I was in middle school, uh, I remember, I think we might've been in Buffalo when my parents got, maybe me and my brother involved in some like kids track stuff. I don't remember where that was, but that's when I realized I wasn't a fast sprinter. Mm. Like I wouldn't win anything. And they, I don't remember any long distance events, but 
Um, I ran cross country in middle school. Um, I don't know how I got into that. I didn't do track. I did cross country. And I remember my, my, uh, not my, my eighth grade year, um, I ran enough where I got invited to the county-wide meet. And um, I didn't really realize what place I was in. I came in 11th. They gave medals to the first 10. <laughs> so I was pissed that I didn't run yeah. faster than the kid that was right in front of me. Um, I didn't really run. I mean, I, wouldn't call, I didn't win any meets, but I, I ran competitively, meaning I ran on the, the cross-country team, and we did hill repeats and all that kind of stuff. Um, but in high school, it was strictly all soccer. Um, I didn't. I would run kind of maybe some recreational, um, like if the subdivision I lived in, they had something called the, the Surreywood Three Miler on July Fourth. I ran that. Uh, my dad would do jogging on the track, um, uh, and then I got into real serious, like the long, like marathon plus was 2006 my dad ran the richmond marathon in 2005 uh, i can't remember how old he was he was born in 41 so that whatever that i can't good for him. i can't do math in front of no, that's great good for him um so, wait a minute how, what year was he born 41 he was born 41 so he ran the richmond marathon in 2005 so that's what uh 59 plus five yeah good for him yeah. um and i remember my mom called me on the friday night before she said hey do you want to go down to richmond and watch your dad watch uh watch your dad run the marathon tomorrow i said Dad's running a fucking what? <laughs> All along, he had been doing that sports backers, sports backers yeah, yeah. training team. So we go down there to the different spots. We see him finish. Um, my daughter was four. He would come off the road and hug us and talk, and he was just having the greatest time. And I'm thinking, I mean, my dad is no no schmuck, but I'm like, how hard can this be? My dad is sixty something, and we used to call him the waif because he was real thin. I mean, I'm almost two twenty. He's maybe one. 50, 160, if that. He's 5'9", he's, he's short, but he was a good basketball player. So after that, I thought, man, I got, this is organized. I, I, I would like to do this. The following January, I signed up for the Monument Avenue 10K training team out of our local YMCA here in town. And then that morphed into a half marathon training team, which was, uh, this was 2006, was called the, and I did fine with that. I, I uh, ran under 50 minutes, which was pretty good for a 10K. That's great. And, of course, I was, I think, 180 at the time. <laughs> uh, that kind of morphed into, I found a half marathon training team that was uh, training for the battlefield half, which is which then turned into the Patrick Henry, which then turned into the Ashland half. And I was out at the Verona Battlefield. Um and I met some of the coolest people during that training group, uh, people that are your pace that you spend hours with on Saturday morning. We weren't going to win anything. I just thought, man, this is great. And uh, so that fall, I ran Richmond. Mm. I, that, that morphed into a grassroots or whatever you want to call it, marathon training group that we met every Saturday. Of course, you'd have to do your runs during the week so you could keep up on Saturday mornings for the, what they call the long run. And... And I finished, and I couldn't believe it, and I got hooked after that. And um, I've done, I think, 38. 38 since. marathons. Yeah, and half of those are ultras, which are 50K or longer. Um, what's the longest you've run? Uh, the longest I've finished um, was 100 kilometers, but I've run farther than that. I just didn't finish the race. So 100K I ran, it was called the Graveyard 100, that started in Corolla and finished in Hatteras on the Outer Banks. That was incredible. <laughs> uh if my math serves me correct, 100K is 60 miles. It's 62, right? 62. Yeah. Um, 
All right, so I'm going to tell a quick running story. And you, you, you and I met tonight, so you've physically seen me. I don't put off a runner vibe. Um, but I did run a half marathon back in my, in my 30s. I was not your dad's age oh, running a well, marathon. Then you know what it takes. I do, and I finished. I ran with my brother-in-law. He, he wanted to run with me. He's a Navy guy. I'm an Army guy. I thought we were going to run the entire time, not stop and walk ever. And he stops to go pee. Two miles in, I'm like, what are you doing? And I said, I'm going to keep going, man. He's like, no, we're running this together. So I was wrecked the rest of the time. Because once you stop once, your legs get heavy. It it's, yeah. it's, can be brutal. Anyway, a minute after he and I finished, a guy my age now died at the finish line. And I said, I don't think I'm going to run these anymore. Yeah, people do. It's scary. So the reason I kept up with it, um, I was doing these types of investigations back then. So... It was a serious uh, coping mechanism. Mm. Maybe that and a little bit of the adult beverages. Um, maybe sometimes too many of those, but uh, mostly the running was a very good way to um, cope with stress from work. Uh, you know, families, just regular everyday things. But I felt like I had a little bit more from work, and I wanted to be effective in my job. And I was meeting. You don't meet too many drug addicts or alcoholics on Saturday mornings at 7 when you're going out to run, you know, between 10 and 16 miles. And when I say run, yeah, there is some walking in there when you get your water or you got to go to the bathroom or you just need to walk break or whatever. And, and over time, my, my ability level lowered, so I would incorporate a little bit more walking just so I could do the distance. But, right. Um, you know, with anything that I do, sometimes I tend to get a little obsessive. Um, I heard about this group called Marathon Maniacs. I'm like, well, I, I need to know about that. I learned that the minimum entry to get into that is three marathons in 90 days. So I did that. But that's there are people that do one every weekend. Mm. I mean, for everything that you think you're doing, there's people that are doing it 10 times. You, you, yeah. you, you realize that. So, um, But I had met a lot of interesting people. Uh, it, it morphed into kind of developed into doing some relay stuff with other adults where we ran uh, something called the Colonial 200, where we ran from Charlottesville, you know, past Williamsburg in a, in a relay format. Um, and then when I turned four, when I was turning 40 back in 2009, I thought, um, man, I should do a, find a 40-mile race. By then, I had done a lot of marathons and Frankly, they weren't really that hard to finish. I mean, I wasn't running sub four hours. I'm talking four and a half hours, four hours, 40 minutes. N nothing close to Boston qualifying for my, you know, I was doing okay for my ability level. And I was having fun. And, you know, these events need slow people like me for ra for race fees. Mm. <laughs> so they can give money to the prize winner. And, and to make the fast people feel fast. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I found a race called the Strolling Gym 40 Miler in Wartrace, Tennessee, and uh, that was in the, the mountains of Tennessee. We ran that. And well, that, that had to be a little more brutal than the average. It was. Altitude and the up and down. It was. And, yeah, there was some time where I wasn't sure if I was going to finish that or not. Um, but they did have a 40 for you at the end <laughs> and some raw chicken. The guy that runs it, uh, he's the one that does this thing called Barkley Marathons, if you've ever heard of this. I've heard of those. It's the same race director. They're in the Smoky Mountains, right? Yeah. yeah. Same race director. He writes messages on the road to mess with you. <laughs> like, these aren't hills. You haven't seen hills yet. Um, and then after that, I thought, well, here's a quick story on that. That race was not 40 miles. It was 42 because they had to detour it because of a rainstorm during the race. Mm. So there was, at one point, we didn't even know where the finish line was. So by the time it was done, I'd run over 42. I'm like, I can do 50. That's just another hour and a half, two hours, and that, you know you're on the you're on your feet all day. What's another two hours? So that morphed into a fifty miler. I did one of those, and then um, uh, a couple more of those. 
I ran from Marathon Key to Key West in a race, and then um, I tried my first 100-miler year before last, and, and I had to quit at 70 because it was just too much pain. Yeah, so I was going to go to mental pain. So let's go to mental pain, actually. What are you thinking about when you're running? Do you, ha- do you have a million thoughts running through your head, or is it just this constant calm where there's not a, a lot you're thinking about? It's a, it's a constant calm, and it... The way I describe it is like this. It's very similar to the moments before your child is born. There's nothing else that matters in the world. Mm. Okay. Yeah, that's a good way to think about it. So with the running, when you're going that kind of distance, for what I felt like I needed to cope with, when I got out to those long distances, the only thing that mattered was what was happening right there in the moment, what was happening next. Getting to the next aid station and getting some food. You know, I'm not thinking about my personal problems. Um, you get to a point where you know you just tolerate the level of pain, and, and that's you know you're alive when you're here, when you're feeling that, and you want to see how far you can go, and you meet interesting people along the way too. You talk with people and you kill some miles that way, but uh, life kind of hangs in the balance because the only thing that matters is what is happening right there next, and it's an interesting feeling, and it's it's hard to replicate it. It really is. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, you can't replicate it in training because you're thinking about getting back home and doing something else because you're not in a, an event. Right, 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 right. Okay. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. So, I, I'll i never experience that firsthand because I don't plan on running. Maybe I'll start running two or three miles again, but, yeah, not 70 miles of – yeah, that's mm. – So when you're – in that 100-mile deal where you, you stopped after 70 miles, what was physically the most painful for you? So I have to back up to my first 50 mile or so, which was um, 2010. Uh, that was up in Northern Virginia in Algonquin or Algonquin, uh, a park in Prince William County on the near Great Falls along the, uh, the Potomac where it's through the rocks and stuff. So it's a lot of hills and, and uh, trails and stuff. And my feet shifted around so much in my shoes. I was, you know, had a lot of ignorance. Um, because the 40 miler was basically on the road. Um, yeah, there was some blistering, but nothing like running a trail, you know, up and down, up and down. And so I had some major, uh, uh, it wasn't blistering, it was maceration of the pads of my feet. What is maceration? The skin is so wet, it breaks and mac- macerates down because it's just so wet from moisture. So a blister doesn't form, it's just skin it, tearing. It's tearing, and it kind of collected down at the base of my toes. And I didn't really understand why my feet hurt so much until I took my shoes. I made it to the end, but boy, it hurt. That had never happened before. No. And I was, I was, I went to the medical tent, and the guy's like, "Holy shit, dude! I've never seen anything like that." And I've, I've been at hundred miles. I'm like, man, I think I have to take grafts off my ass and stuff. Yeah. I was advised to go to the hospital, so they take me in the Gator over to my car. You know, I got my finishing medal and all that, and met Dean Carnazes. He was at the finish line, and I, we let him be in our picture. I had some support up there, and we let him be in our team picture. And, um, and, you know, in hindsight, you look at him, that guy's cut, man. I look like a fat fuck. <laughs> um, but I said, we're not going to the hospital in Northern Virginia. We're going to come down here. And um, I, I got wheeled in, and uh, I had to get I – was, I was out of work for two weeks. Uh, I had to have my feet wrapped. I didn't have to get any skin stuff taken off. You know, of course, they ask, why did you do that? I'm like, oh, I just didn't know, but next time I'll take my feet for sure. Um, so – and my wife's, I was such a burden for those two weeks. I couldn't even uh, really shower for a few days. And I had just done a 50-miler because you, you can't shower. And you could try to bathe with your feet hanging out of the tub. But you think, oh, that's pretty easy. You're too big when you're 5'11 or whatever to be in a bathtub. Right. And it just doesn't really work. 
So we had a talk. She said, look, you can do these these kind of events, but you just can't be a burden to us. Um, I said, That's fair. Yeah, fair enough. So when I did the 100K down in the, um, the Outer Banks, I got to a point where my feet were hurting so bad I was checking them, and with with blisters, you ha- you have to. It's moisture, heat, and friction. If you remove remove one of those, you're you're gonna probably not have too much trouble. You can handle pain, but the breaking of the skin puts you out, you know. Afterwards, so I kept checking my feet, checking my feet, and um, they never never broke open. I said, well, I can just deal with the pain uh, as long as my the skin's not breaking open. I'll probably be okay. Now I'm not talking about little blisters on the edges of your toes. I'm talking about your feet falling apart. My feet. That's my weakness mentally not too much i mean power through it i don't win anything i just want to finish you know well you're winning by jogging that far so um i decided i finished that event but what was happening up at the 100 miler was that my feet were hurting so bad and i still had over a marathon to go and i thought you know i really want that you get a belt buckle a big freaking belt buckle when you run 100 miles or cover 100 miles on foot in in, uh, 30 hours that's like kind of a standard cutoff for the buckle um, I wanted that really bad, but not, it wasn't worth being, being laid out. Now, the next time I try it might be, but it wasn't that time. And I just, I mean, this was like one thirty in the morning. I've been running since that, the, the morning before. Yeah. Um, had to make the call and my, you have a crew with you usually who's helping you when you get to the aid stations and they were trying to talk me into go back and going. And of course now in hindsight, I wish I kept going. Um, I'd even bought a new raincoat from North Face for when it rained overnight and never even got to wear it <laughs> because I quit before it started raining. <laughs> Is that the only time you've ever quit? No, I had a, no, they call it DNF. I had another DNF in a, a race I did in the mountains, the Blue Ridge. Um, I actually felt like I was going to get injured. Yeah. And it just, again, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't, and I wasn't going to make one of the cutoffs because you have to make certain t- a certain uh, distances by a certain time, or you're going to get pulled off because they're not they can't be out there for three days. Right. And I didn't think I was going to make one of the cutoffs, and it, it just became easier to quit. And of course, in hindsight, you, you kick yourself, but um, always, yeah, always. So that was a promise I made to my wife, um, and I wanted to keep it. And uh, but maybe next time, you know, child will be out of college, working somewhere, won't be responsible for. For that, maybe a different decisions made. I don't know. I, I felt mentally strong, but you know, it's easy to say that now. Sure. <laughs> so I, I've I've known a few, by a few, like three ultra marathons before I met you tonight, and they tell stories of ordering pizza while they're running. So some, some Domino's delivery guys pull up. I, I don't. What what instructions do you give to Domino's Pizza or anything like that? Where to find you? I guess if you have your phone, uh, you can probably tell them that you're at a corner somewhere. Um, the races I've done is that the race directors either have food there or you, you're self-supported. Um, and some of these ultras, uh, I did a time, an eight-hour timed race in Powhatan State Park. It was called the um, Piedmont Eight Hour. And that guy, it was a loop course through the woods. Like Everybody did the three-mile loop the, first, the same direction the first loop, and then after that you could do any loop you wanted any direction and he did as many miles as you could in eight hours and he had fajitas uh hot food he was grilling stuff because you got to have some solid food you can't just put goose in or do gatorade right and you do too much sugar and that sloshes around your stomach and you're going to vomit it up right uh so you learn through training and going out and running like i would run from here to uh st edward's church on huguenot road mm. you know i figured out how to get across the river on huguenot 
run Libby, run through all that stuff. There's there's amazing sidewalks everywhere if you really look. Right. And that would be, you know, almost an all-day thing. And I would stop at convenience stores with my debit card along the way. And that way I didn't have to carry anything. Just to see, that way, point to point, you get picked up, you know you're going to do the distance for training. Um, all these little mind games you play. Um, I've never done a pizza. Um, I've, eaten it, I've eaten it during a race, but I've never ordered anything out. Uh, I have heard of somebody that's done that. Uh, he wrote, in fact, he wrote a book. Um, he might have embellished a little bit. I'm not so sure. but uh, It's not fun unless you embellish a little right. bit. Right. Um, but I've had some good experiences with it. I've uh, tried to get back into it. i got some tendonitis at my age now. I've put on a little bit of weight, and I kind of got to that point where I'm starting to uh, get a little bit, but um, signed up to do the Richmond Half. We'll see what happens. Okay, nice. When when is the Richmond? November nineteenth. Okay, so it's coming up. Yeah, yeah. All right, uh, all right. So, <laughs> I we ask this question to most of our guests. Now you may have heard this question already, so maybe you're ready for it. Maybe you're not. This is uh, the occasional co-host Kevin. Uh, his, this is his question. It's actually the favorite, my favorite part of most uh, episodes because it's very revealing about the guest. Your uh, late night talk show or daytime talk show host, you get to bring three or four guests. One male, one female, one uh, musical act can be a soloist or a group. Uh, and if you like stand-up comedy, you can uh, give us a stand-up comedian to be on your show. Oh they can gosh. be alive or dead. They can be people you know. They can be famous people, not famous people. Your show can be humorous. It can be thought-provoking. It can be whatever you want it to be. But who are your three or four guests? A male, a female, and a... Music, and then comedy, if you like stand-up comedy. Uh, well, at the risk of sounding sappy, I guess the male would be my uncle, who uh, served in World War II. That's a great answer. I would like to ask him questions and that have him answer me honestly about what he did in naval intelligence. Mm. Um, because but the only story we have from his service in the Pacific is that he got dumped out between ships when they were he's being transported in a bucket which was extremely dangerous. He was a lieutenant, or a command, lieutenant commander. Um, uh, he was a Russian translator, uh, very smart, never married, he was always a bachelor. He lived on Capitol Hill in, in um, D.C. And he was, he was my mom's oldest brother, so he was kind of a surrogate grandfather because my mom's father was born in 1887. Oh, my gosh. And so he was elderly when I was a little boy, my mom being the youngest of 10, good Catholic family in the South. Um, so he'd be the male uh, because he has always been. I've always looked up to him. Uh, I love that answer. Female. I have to pass on that one. What was the third one? I'm sorry. Music. Um, anybody that would come and play. Uh, gosh, Larry Sparks. I don't know Larry Sparks. Larry Sparks is a uh, bluegrass artist. I get, I used, well, they don't have the festival anymore. Amelia Family Campground has a bluegrass festival every year, and I would go camping there and bring some friends along and introduce people to the music along the way. And uh, Larry Sparks played there, He's but he's been a, uh, he was a favorite of my father's, and so I kind of got introduced to him. And, he, you know, these people, they play on stage, and they go sit at their table and sell their, their records yeah, and their CDs. Yeah. And you can talk to them. And... Uh, he would just be a real interesting person to talk to more of. I got my picture taken with him one time. It wasn't he didn't have the best facial expression on his face, so I'd like to get a second try. All right, right on. Uh, as for the female, I uh, I just drawn a blank at the moment. I'm, I'm sorry about that. No, it's all good. Stand up comedy. Stand up comedy. I always like listening to the guy Stephen Wright. Oh, the driest comedian. Yeah, of and uh, sometimes you didn't always get it, but you did at some point. Eventually, it hits you. Yeah. Right? 
I guess he's he hasn't done stand up in a long time. Be, I don't be, know. Is he still alive? I think he is, but he's he's got to be seventy mm-hmm. at this point. I would think. Uh, Condoleezza Rice. There we go. All right, nice, good save there. Condoleezza Rice. She's even though she's not in a, I don't think she's in a government position anymore, but she's clearly still a leader. I think she's she does a lot with colleges. I, I'm, yeah, I'm not exactly sure what she does, but uh, she's she seems to be very involved since she left. No scandals, no. Just she just seems very knowledgeable, and apparently she's some kind of uh, master piano player. I think she's a powerhouse in anything she sets her mind yeah. to. Yeah, I think she's actually on the playoff selection committee. The first female, probably ever, to be on it. I think she's been on it since it started, and she's really really into college football too. I think I would certainly. Think I that. think I, re- I remember hearing something about that. Yeah. All right. But yeah, that'd be it. It's a good show. It's yeah. a really good show. You'd enjoy it, I imagine. Talking yeah. to your uncle and talking to Condoleezza. Yeah, his name's uh, Joe Schramm. And uh, we have, he was, he's at Arlington. Yeah. We got his flag at the house. He should be buried at Arlington. All right, tell us about your family, your, your, uh, your wife and your daughter. Uh, my wife's name is Monica. Uh, I met her, I guess, 1988, 89, uh, at James Madison. That's where we met. Uh, we started dating, uh, I guess, February of 89, and then uh, shortly thereafter, her father died unexpectedly, mm. right after we started dating. Um, so that's always been an interesting, and it was unexpected. He, he was a runner. He was a distance runner. He had a heart attack uh, when he got back to his house on his front porch, and that's where he was found. Wouldn't that scare you? Yeah. Yeah, and, and she's older, and he was middle 40s, I think. Mm. Um, and I got a chance to meet him. Matter of fact... Part of the story is that the previous December, he had remarried to his third wife, and this was supposed to be the last, you know, the best thing. And he, uh, Monica's father, Roberto, grew up in Rome, and he was a Roman Italian. And so his brothers and sisters came over for his wedding, and then, you know, three months later, they're at his funeral. All the same people came back. Uh, but we continued to date. Uh, there was a, I pulled the same thing I did as a senior in high school. I broke up with my girlfriend when I was a senior in college. Did the same thing with Monica. Um, but then uh, when I graduated in that August of 91, she had spent that summer in Italy. And, and we, of course, been writing letters. And I knew that if she came back in time and came to Harrisonburg, she lived in Cockeysville, Maryland. If she came to my graduation, I knew I was going to marry her. Mm. And she was there. Did she? Inv- did you invite her? I told her, you know, I really would like you to be here. My family's going to be here. Um, you were still friends. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, it was a breakup. Just, I don't know. What were we, 21, 20 years old? The brain's not fully formed for you. Yeah. One of you. Um, but after she, I got out in 91, she got out in 92. Uh, we continued to date. Um, she eventually moved to Richmond and got a job in marketing. Um, and we got married in 1995 at uh, St. Benedict's. Okay. Um, and then in 2001, we had uh, our daughter, Lucy Ellis, who's now 21. Um, is that first and middle name, or is that her first name? Her, uh, her name is Lucy Ellis Cliz, and so we, at, we call her different things. Uh, Lucy Ellis is what we call her, L-E, Lucy, Little Poppy, Poppy, you know, get your fucking ass in here right now before I beat your ass. Kind of. <laughs> um and uh, we've blessed with one child, so uh, we've raised her in Ashland, uh, riding her bikes on the sidewalks, going to the Y, going to Carter Park, probably similar to what y'all experienced when I listened to y'all's, uh, y'all's growing up. Uh, she went to the public schools here. She went to Kitty Kingdom, uh, Henry Clay, Gandhi, Liberty. She was in marching band in high school. She got to take all kinds of cool trips. Uh, so she's a senior at Longwood University now okay, studying nice. history. 
Very cool. Um, and uh, we do a lot together. We have a lot of fun. We haven't gone camp. We used to have a father-daughter camp and trip um, that we used to do with some other fathers and daughters. We were kind of part of Indian princesses for a while until we got kicked out because of too much drinking. <laughs> so we formed uh, Dads and Daughters of Ashland, oh, nice. our own group. And so, a, lot more, a lot more tolerant of drinking. Man. Yeah, it was better than Fathers and Girls. I mean, just the acronym yeah. didn't work. <laughs> that, that, yeah, that's not a great it just acronym. Didn't choice, work. Yeah. Um, so yeah, she's uh, she's coming home uh, soon. She's gonna go to the state fair. She's got this boyfriend that went to Randolph Macon. Ah. she's dating. So okay, yeah, good family. Uh, it's uh, twenty seven years this November being married. Congrats, that's really cool. I forgot to ask you about your podcast. Tell me about your podcast. Oh yeah, my podcast is called Running in the Center of the Universe. So it sounds similar to very similar, yeah. you know, because of Ashland. And um, I started it in two thousand eight. Oh, you've been doing it a while. Yeah, and I did it. You're, you're like a godfather. 2008 or 2012. I, can't, I think it's 2008. No, 2012. I think 12 was, sounds more like Maybe that's it. I, still 10 years. Um, I started it because I was when I was doing some of those long runs, I needed to listen to more than music, and I figured out how to find some podcasts and put them on my little iPod shuffle. Remember the one that looked like a pack of Wrigley's? That's where the name came from, the iPod. The right? iPod. Yeah. And... I thought, man, I could do something like this. I had a, or by then I had a digital recorder at work. It would with the USB thing, and sometimes I would run and just talk to myself. And it's amazing how you could pass time talking to yourself. Mm. And so eventually, I just did it to kind of keep myself accountable and kind of do a, a audio log of what I was doing, what I was experiencing, and thinking while I was training for these, you know, going out doing eight nine miles in the middle of the week. You know, you're coming home, your family's already eating dinner, you get cleaned up and you're eating by yourself. I mean, there's it's a, you know, a lot of stuff goes through your head when you're out there by yourself. And I would train during the week just by myself, not weekends I would run with a group. I eventually thought, how do I do this? And um, I started with uh, something called Odyssey or whatever. And then eventually... Um, I, um, Audacity. Uh, Audacity. Yeah. And then we got, uh, we had GarageBand on our Mac. And that completely changed it. That was a lot easier for so, me. So what I'm using is that right what you're now. Using? Yeah. And it was a lot easier to just kind of piggyback from the show before I have a, I had a little intro that I and I'd get some sound effects and I go then I was spending too much time doing stupid sound effects. Um, and then I eventually put it on Podbean. That's what I'm on. And you know you put your email out there and eventually you start communicating with some people who are like minded. Uh, most of them weren't weird. There's always some some strange stuff. And then I came up with my brand is Ashlyn Dave. Okay. Um, and I got that nickname because with that first half marathon training group I was doing, there were two Daves on my in my pace group. Well, there was one a guy from Mechanicsville, and there was me from Ashland. I got called Ashland Dave, and I, I've taken it ever since. I'm AshlandDave at gmail.com. Um, and so I over the course of the podcast, I've met people from all over the world, mm. um, and it's maybe similar to your situation, um, people that. Um, I've visited people for that and I've stayed at their house to go do ultras in other states. Um, after their, you know, uh, there's after a while you figure out who's retired law enforcement because of certain things you say or who's military. And there's a little bit higher level of trust there after you kind of, uh, go through some back and forth. Um, and so, you know, every, when I get to a hundredth episode, I'll do what's called a listener roll call. I'll ask people, Hey man, I'm getting ready. Like right now I'm getting close to episode 300. Like, send me an email, tell me where you hail from, what kind of running you do, and I'll put you on the roll call. for. So, so for that 100th episode, I'll do a listener roll call. And, you know, you, you might get 20 people that... It's fun to hear. You know, people like to hear their... If they're really into podcasts, they'll like to hear their name called oh, yeah. out. And some people don't want their last name, and I honor all that. 
but it's more, or I keep using that word, it's kind of developed into, or I've done some interviews. Um, that's how I, I could tell you were a good interviewer because I've tried to do interview other people. Um, it's uh, developed into where I actually uh, have a digital recorder and I record sound bites when I do events to kind of um, kind of go back and analyze that later and mm-hmm. I'll put the I'll, I'll attach that audio on a show and do an edit and, and as you know editing takes much longer than sitting around doing the production. absolutely um, and sometimes I've done uh, uh, you know like a what is it called when you uh, do a prize of an earlier episode? You just—I didn't have anything for that month, so I just uh, picked an old one and said, "Hey, I'm going to re- do a reprise." Uh, I'm a little behind now. I used to try to do one every other week. It's very time-consuming. The house has to be perfectly quiet. You have a good setup here, uh, so every now and then there'd be some background stuff because I just—you know—our Mac is set up on a little desk in our kitchen. Um, but I've met a lot of interesting people, um, and there's some people that will email. Uh, that you kind of have an ongoing dialogue with over the course of time, uh, which is kind of cool. Yeah. Um, and I was always, because of the kind of cases I worked at Hanover, I was always very wary of online relationships. But over time, they became so much more mainstream, and you can kind of figure out who's weird and who's not. Um, and I thought it was okay. You know what? So what? Somebody wants to communicate. They're not coming to my door. Right. Um, and you know, I like them to be nice to me, so I'm going to be nice to them. But then you get marketed to. Um, but you know, that's part of it. I've really enjoyed doing it. It's been kind of a hobby for several years. Uh, when I go back and listen to the first couple episodes, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, that's so horrible. I have the same problem. Um, but you know, that's how you get better. And I used there was a point in times I was I'd get several hundred downloads, and then you know, over time, if you skip stuff, people don't come back. I do it for my own enjoyment. As we kind of talked before, it's kind of about a little bit of an audio log from my life for a segment of time. Um, and uh, I tried to monetize it at one point in time, and I just said, you know what, that's not that's not for me. It's not fun, I don't think. Um, I, I, I tried in, Podbean will let you insert ads. Uh, I was like, okay, I got them all set. I went back and listened to shows. I would see they do a 15-second ad on the front and the back. I'm like, how come I'm not, I'm not getting any money? Well, ain't nobody downloading the show. <laughs> you got to have some threshold. So I, I, it's always just been um, just for accountability. But I've really enjoyed doing it. Yeah. it's uh, It sounds awesome, man. It's been you fun. Have, you have a lot of things in your life that uh, I imagine you enjoy doing. Yeah. yeah. Try to stay busy. Try to stay busy. Now that I'm – I'm still working. And I'm retired from Hanover, but I'm still working full-time. So I've uh, – So you're not fully retired? No. It's, you know, in uh, – in VRS with hazardous duty work, you can retire at age 50 if you have 25 years of hazardous duty service. Um, some guys can live completely on their Virginia retirement pension. Um, you know, you pretty much have to have benefits from something else where that takes about half your check. I always wanted to retire and, and get another job and double dip and, and just have a little different lifestyle. You get more options. You know, you're not happier when you get more money coming in, but boy, you got some more options. Yeah. You really do. And sometimes those options can make you happier. Yeah. And uh, and you can help others. You can have fun yourself. Uh, You can take more spontaneous trips. Um, So uh, I did a couple other jobs and then I finally landed at um, a a major energy provider in uh, corporate intelligence and security. And uh, that's probably where I'll be for a while. Okay. It's good doing some cybersecurity. Awesome. 
Dave, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it, man. I also deeply appreciate your service to our community. Um, and I look forward to people hearing this episode. Thank you for the opportunity. It was good talking to y'all. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us at scodopodcast.com. Thank you.